We rejoice in the new callings that have come to two of our brethren and in the inspiration that has directed them. One of the consequences of mortality is the necessity of earning our daily bread. We do so as employees, as business people, and as investors. In all of our earning activities, we have the challenge of dealing fairly and considerately with others. Our duty is clear. The Savior gave us the golden rule. All things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. Satan's position is the opposite. He sponsors self-interest, raw and unrefined by any other consideration. One of his most effective tools is the temptation to take unfair advantage in order to get gain. It has been so from the beginning. Cain set the pattern of the world. Cain coveted the flocks of his brother Abel, and Satan showed him how to obtain them. Satan taught Cain that a man could get worldly wealth by committing some evil against its owner. Cain killed Abel. The scriptures say he did so for the sake of getting gain, the flocks of his brother. Seeing this, the Lord asked Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? Cain first attempted to cover his sin with a lie. I know not. Then he added a rationalization. Am I my brother's keeper? Are we our brother's keepers? In other words, are we responsible to look after the well-being of our neighbors as we seek to earn our daily bread? The Savior's golden rule says we are. Satan says we are not. Tempted of Satan, some have followed the example of Cain. They covet property and then sin to obtain it. The sin may be murder, robbery, or theft. It may be fraud or deception. It may even be some clever but legal manipulation of facts or influence to take unfair advantage of another. Always the excuse is the same. Am I my brother's keeper? Those who follow the example of Cain fulfill a Book of Mormon prophecy. Seeing our day, Nephi prophesied that many would say, Lie a little, take advantage of one because of his words, dig a pit for thy neighbor, there is no harm in this. We live in a world where many look on the marketplace as a ruthless arena where the buyer must beware, where no one is obligated to do more than the law requires, and where fraud isn't fraud unless you can prove it in court. Members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have a higher standard. President Harold B. Lee said, The standard in the Church must be visibly higher than the standard in the world. We are commanded to live the golden rule. Despite that high standard, some who profess to be Christians seek to earn their living by systematically victimizing their neighbors. Some seize wealth by trafficking in illegal drugs or pornography. Traders in these products enrich themselves by transactions that ruin the bodies, minds, or morals of their customers. Other criminals live by stealing, and not all stealing is by gunpoint or in dark of night. Some theft is by deception where the thief manipulates the confidence of his victim. 
The white-collar cousin of stealing is fraud, which gets its gain by lying about an essential fact in a transaction. Scheming promoters with glib tongues and ingratiating manner deceive their neighbors into investments the promoters know to be more speculative than they dare reveal. Difficulties of proof make fraud a hard crime to enforce, but the inadequacies of the laws of man provide no license for transgression under the laws of God. Though their method of thievery may be immune from correction in this life, sophisticated thieves in white shirts and ties will ultimately be seen and punished for what they are. He who presides over that eternal tribunal knows our secret acts, and he is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Most of us can be relatively comfortable when a message on the golden rule in the workplace uses examples like illegal drugs and theft by deception. What follows is more challenging. And it should be. We cannot expect to be comfortable if we measure our conduct against the Savior's command, I would that ye should be perfect even as I. To follow in the footsteps of the only perfect person who ever lived, we must expect to stretch our souls. Followers of Christ have the moral responsibility of earning their livings and conducting their financial transactions in ways that are consistent with the principles of the gospel and the teachings of the Savior. Members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints should not be involved in employment or other activities upon which they cannot conscientiously ask the blessings of the Lord. Persons who prosecute frivolous lawsuits do not measure up to this high standard. Groundless litigation rewards some plaintiffs handsomely but it injures everyone else by raising the price of products and services. An employee who receives the agreed compensation but does not perform the agreed service earns part of his living by injuring others. So does an employer who is unfair to his employees. An idealistic young professional wrote church headquarters about the plight of migrant farm workers. He had observed treatment that was probably illegal and certainly unchristian. When I read his letter, I thought of the positive example of Jesse Knight, the great benefactor of Brigham Young Academy. At a time when most mine owners exploited their workers, this Christian employer paid his miners something extra so they could earn their living in six days' labor and rest on the Sabbath. He did not require them to patronize a company store. He built his workers a building for recreation, worship, and schooling. And Brother Knight would not permit the superintendent to question his workers about their religion or politics. Of course, we understand that what an employer can pay his employees is limited by what his business can obtain for its products or services in a competitive marketplace. Contracts also impose limits on legitimate economic expectations. Christian standards should also apply to those who earn a living by selling or advertising products in the marketplace. The marketplace for products and services has many potential buyers who are vulnerable because they are poorly informed or excessively trusting 
For example, a friend told me of a young student couple who didn't have enough money for rent, groceries, or tuition, who were persuaded to sign up for an expensive self-improvement course. Can a seller ever justify obtaining personal profit by persuading someone to assume a financial burden he cannot wisely bear in order to acquire something he does not really need? The Prophet Joseph Smith taught that Latter-day Saints should deal justly with their neighbors and mercifully with the poor. To cite another kind of example, an owner who keeps his business open on Sunday prevents his employees from attending worship services and being with their families on the Sabbath. Modern-day prophets have encouraged us not to shop on Sunday. Those of us who shop on Sunday cannot escape responsibility for encouraging businesses to remain open on that day. Essential services must be provided, but most Sabbath transactions could be avoided if merchants and customers were determined to avoid doing business on the Lord's Day. Last year, the Deseret News carried an article about a Salt Lake City pharmacist who stopped selling cigarettes in his drugstore. He explained, It's just incompatible for a profession dedicated to saving people's lives to sell a product that does nothing but kill. That merchant was more concerned about his customers' welfare than his personal profits. Sister Oaks called my attention to a similar example in the world of advertising. The magazine Women's Sports and Fitness does not accept cigarette ads, thus foregoing much-needed revenue. A woman columnist and physician, Dr. Joan Ulliot, praised this policy and contrasted it to the practice of another organization. And I quote, I am dismayed that a prominent women's sport, tennis, continues to take support from a cigarette company. Surely the top women in this sport, none of whom smoke, have the courage to say no to this hypocrisy and stop lending their names and prestige to sanction and glamorize a lethal product. Any role model in sport who accepts support or sponsorship from a company whose products destroy health and fitness should take a hard look at what she is by association endorsing." End of quote. Wouldn't it be wonderful if this same attitude of looking after the interests of others governed Latter-day Saints who are making a profit from the sale or promotion of alcoholic beverages? Consider the terrible effects of alcohol. Alcohol-related accidents are the leading cause of death of those under 25. The physical, social, and financial effects of alcohol ruin marriages and family life. By dulling inhibitions, alcohol leads to untold numbers of crimes and moral transgressions. Alcohol is the number one addictive drug in our day. The consumption of alcohol is increasing among youth. Targeting young audiences, advertisers portray beer and wine as joyful, socially desirable, and harmless. Producers are promoting new types of alcoholic beverages as competitors in the huge soft drink market. Grocery and convenience stores and gas stations stock alcoholic beverages side by side with soda pop. Can Christians who are involved in this commerce be indifferent to the physical and moral effects of the alcohol from which they are making their profits. 
Other examples could be given, but these few are sufficient to illustrate the principle that the golden rule applies to our earning activities. We are our brother's keeper, even in the marketplace. I'm aware that this is a high standard, which cannot be met overnight. But it is important to recognize our responsibility and begin to work toward it. And we should do so joyfully. The gospel is the good news. Commandments lead to blessings. The Prophet Joseph Smith told our first missionaries that when preaching we should warn in compassion. We have no right to scare mankind to repentance, he said. We should preach the gospel as glad tidings of great joy unto all people. We should also remember that the principle that the golden rule governs our earning activities is difficult to apply in practice. We should not consider employees responsible for transactions they regret but cannot control. A decision that is made by the owner of a market should not inflict feelings of guilt on a conscientious but powerless Christian who runs the checkout stand. Similarly, a part owner does not have freedom to impose his standards on business policies if he has partners who do not share his moral concerns. An incorporated business may be controlled by stockholders who have no concern for the destructive human effects of a profitable product or policy. We live in a complex society where even the simplest principle can be exquisitely difficult to apply. I admire investors who are determined not to obtain income or investment profits from transactions that add to the sum total of sin and misery in the world, but they will have difficulty finding investments that meet this high standard. Good things are often packaged with bad, so decisions usually involve balancing. In a world of corporate diversification, we are likely to find that a business dealing in beverages sells milk in one division and alcohol in another. Just when we think we are entirely unspotted from the world, we may find that our life insurance is partially funded by investments we wish to avoid, or our savings may be deposited in a bank that is lending to ventures we could not approve. Such complexities make it difficult to prescribe firm rules. We must rely on teaching correct principles which each member should personally apply to govern his or her own circumstances. To that end, each of us should give thoughtful and prayerful consideration to whether we are looking after the well-being of our neighbors in the way we earn our daily bread. The motive of Cain is at the headwaters of wickedness. Cain's sin was murder, but his motive was personal gain. That motive has produced all manner of wickedness, including murder, thievery, and fraud. That motive is also at work in the legal but immoral practices of those who get gain by preying on the weaknesses or ignorance of their neighbors. Always such activities involve Cain's ancient rationalization, Am I my brother's keeper? In contrast, the Savior taught us to love our enemies, bless them that curse us, do good to them that hate us, and pray for them that despitefully use us and persecute us. When we have that duty towards our enemies, we cannot allow ourselves to do less for our partners, our customers, our employees, 
and others with whom we deal in the marketplace. What a beautiful and happy world this would be if all of us would strive to live these principles to the fullest. Our efforts and influence would affect millions. Examples improve society more than sermons. Most people would rather see a sermon than hear one. In those brilliant generations that followed the appearance of the resurrected Christ in the New World, there were no contentions and disputations among the people, and every man did deal justly with one another. Fourth Nephi records, Surely there could not be a happier people among all the people who had been created by the hand of God. We should be striving to regain that condition. As modern revelation declares, Zion must increase in beauty and in holiness. One of the ways prescribed to achieve that increase is every man seeking the interest of his neighbor and doing all things with an eye single to the glory of God. May God bless us to live the golden rule in our earning activities. As we seek to be our brother's keeper, we will be attempting to follow in the footsteps of the Master. I testify of Jesus Christ, our Savior, whose blood has atoned for repented sins and whose resurrection has broken the bands of death for all. The fullness of the gospel was restored through the Prophet Joseph Smith. His successor, President Ezra Taft Benson, holds the keys of the everlasting gospel in our day. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I think it's wonderful to have a calm exterior, and I didn't know my heart could beat quite this hard. I am thrilled to be a member of this area presidency. You've heard from all three of us today. Elder Cook in the prayer, Elder Anderson and myself. Now it is with humility that I stand before you as one of his servants with a prayer in my heart that someone somewhere will be touched by the Spirit of the Lord, which hopefully will speak through me, and his or her heart and life will be changed. What a wonderful experience of love came to me just a few weeks ago when, at my request, my 91-year-old father, Dr. Harry James Russell, gave me a father's blessing as I prepared to leave for my assignment as second counselor in the Mexico-Central America area. Fathers everywhere, consider the gift of love you can give your children when you are worthy and you lay your hands upon their heads to pronounce inspired Father's blessings as the family patriarch. They will feel a continuing outpouring of your love which will keep them close to you and to the Lord. You will not have to seek them out later. How impressed we were by the caring and outpouring of love evident in the December message by the First Presidency last year. This inspired invitation to return has reached tens of thousands of the Lord's people. It is far more than a Christmas message. It is a clarion call for all to return to the Lord's Church. 
Then in last April General Conference, that wonderful message in a spirit of deep love, please come back, rings in our ears and has reached many hearts. But the Lord requires us, yes, you and me, to locate the less actives and cause them to return to the fold. For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, even I will both search my sheep and seek them out. Yes, we are to both search my sheep, meaning to locate them, and then seek out, bring back the less active members and families with unending and unqualified love. And in the process, we and they shall learn the true meaning of, Ye shall find me when ye shall search for me. Servants of the Lord, they prepare in humility through study of the Book of Mormon, prayer and calling on the Lord, to actually depend on the Lord so that the Spirit of the Lord is in them. The servants of the Lord then visit the less active families and assure them of the redeeming love of the Lord and their love for them. They speak not only by inspiration, but by a higher law in which the Spirit of the Lord speaks through them. Through constant prayer in the heart, what is said is by the Spirit of the Lord. The family re-remembers that the Lord truly loves them and finds that the servants of the Lord love them as well. Then the Lord returns the family to the fold. In my training as a new general authority, I found myself in Costa Rica with Elder Arthur Kay and others. In prayer and fasting, we visited families who were less active. The stake president and bishops had fasted and prayed that the Lord would indicate to them the choice families to be visited, and the families were then notified of the planned visits. We first entered the home of a young, successful businessman with a lovely wife and children. A former leader, he had transgressed the laws of the Church. As the Spirit of the Lord spoke through his servants, tears came to all our eyes as the couple committed to prepare to go to the Lord's house, the beautiful new temple in Guatemala, to be sealed for eternity. Just two weeks ago in Guadalajara, Mexico, at a state conference, I visited three families who will be among my lifelong friends. Miracles occurred in all their lives. In one visit, a non-member father, who has been donating an amount equal to a full tithe, supports his wife and seven sons in the Church, was asked to select as patriarch of the family someone to lead us in kneeling prayer. He looked past the general authority, past the stake president, past the bishop, and with love in his eyes asked his wife to give the prayer. What a golden moment! What a tribute to her love and patience! This same man was unable to sleep that night, and the following morning in a meeting with recent converts and newly returned members gave a loving, beautiful testimony of the gospel and pledged to be baptized in another eight days. Oh, it is exciting to see the servants of the Lord, 
the leaders and members prepare as vessels of the Spirit of God to identify the families who have been distracted or have transgressed and are now less active, and then touch the hearts of these wonderful families. Yes, thousands of families are returning to the Lord. They have received in love the invitation to return, have understood the humble, loving plea, Please come back. They have been searched out by servants of the Lord, then are sought out by the Spirit of the Lord, and brought back as they remember once again the words spoken through the Lord's servants. In these inspired visits, I do not know of a single instance where hearts of families have not been touched by the miracle of our Lord's unconditional love and His servants' caring and love. May we assure our sometimes missing friends in the Church of our Lord's love for them and ask the Spirit of the Lord to testify through us to them of the Lord's love for them and our love as well and bring them back to the fold in joy. I bear my humble witness that our leaders are inspired and receive revelation for us that the Book of Mormon nurtures the true fountain of His Spirit, and that this is the true restored Church of Jesus Christ on earth. And I do this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. My beloved brothers and sisters, the Lord's work is moving forward in Asia through the faith, prayers, and good works of the saints and missionaries in many countries in that part of the world. A spiritual awakening is taking place, and doors are being opened. It is a humbling and uplifting experience for Sister Cannon and me to be called to serve in that choice area of the world. I would like to share some thoughts with you as a father and grandfather. First, I would like to talk to you young children. I want you to know that you are loved by your Father in heaven and your elder brother, Jesus Christ. When Jesus was living upon the earth, a very important event took place. Then were there brought unto him little children, that he should put his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked or tried to stop them from coming. But Jesus said, Suffer, little children, and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And then he laid his hands on them. How important each one of you is to your Father in heaven and to his Son, Jesus Christ. They want you to be happy. They have told us some things which, if you do, will make you feel good inside. Jesus told us to honor our father and mother. That means we need to listen to our parents, ask for their help and advice, and as they do what is right, follow their example. Jesus also said, Pray always, and I will pour out my Spirit upon you, and great shall be your blessing. I hope that each morning and evening you kneel beside your bed and pray to your Father in heaven. As you start the day, ask Him to help you think good thoughts and do good deeds. As each day ends, thank Him for your blessings and ask that His Spirit will always be with you. I know from my own experience that prayer can make you a happier and better person. I hope you are going every week to primary where you can learn how to be happy and serve the Lord. 
and that once a week your family is holding family home evening. If your family is not holding family home evening, ask your parents if you can start having one and then you help them with it. Now I would like to speak to those of you in your youth. This is a great time to be young. You are living in the most exciting period of this world's history. You are also living in the most challenging. We know there are many temptations, but we have confidence in you. The Lord has confidence and faith in you. There is unlimited growth ahead for you if you are willing to work hard and earn it. Be happy. Be glad you are you. Follow the wise counsel of Alma to his son Helaman, given centuries ago. Oh, remember my son, and learn wisdom in thy youth. Yea, learn in thy youth to keep the commandments of God. In one of his last conference addresses, President David O. McKay gave this counsel to the youth of the Church. Our body will not fulfill its purpose, it cannot, without that life-giving something within, which is the offspring of deity as eternal as your Father in heaven. That spirit within you is the real you. What you make of yourself depends upon you as an individual. You are in this world to choose the right or the wrong, to accept the right or yield to temptation. Upon that choice will depend the development of the spiritual part of you." Unquote. O wonderful youth of Zion, pray, study the scriptures, and serve in the Church so that you can have that inner peace that Christ is your Savior and the gospel is the right way to live. As Elder Richard L. Evans wrote, O beloved young friends, remember that life is forever, but youth doesn't last very long. Live to make memories that will bless the whole length of your life." Unquote. Now I speak to you stalwart single adults. You are making great contributions wherever you go. You are helping to build the individual, the home, the church, and the community as you serve as missionaries, teachers, neighbors, and a friend to those in need. Your enthusiasm, spirit, and faith are a blessing to all of us. My fatherly counsel is to remind you of the importance of today. This is the time in which the work of this life is to be done. Be a participant. See that things happen. Make commitments to yourself and the Lord. Live outside yourself with love. A Hindu proverb says, Help thy brother's boat across and, lo, thine own has reached the shore. Now I speak to you who are parents. I was reminded of a cartoon LaRue Longdon, former counselor in the YWMIA, would often share in her talks. It shows the early morning hours with a couple out camping. The husband is fishing with a big smile on his face. The wife puts her sleepy head out of the tent, her hair going in all directions, the mosquitoes buzzing round her face, her eyes barely open, and comments to her husband, Tell me again, dear, how much fun I am having. <laughs> As a parent, you need to remind yourself occasionally of how much fun you are having. Be sure and enjoy being a parent. It's a wonderful and sacred responsibility. Three thoughts I would share. First, take time for your children. As Elder Evans counseled, children are shaped and molded at a very early age. Life goes quickly. Don't brush them off and turn them over to others. Take time for your children before they're grown, before they're gone." Unquote. Second, live within your income. Be frugal and wise. Pay your obligations to the Lord, your country, and yourself, and then live on what is left. 
It takes willpower to say no when you can't afford it, but you will sleep better at night. Third, remember constant courtship. The most important relationship upon this earth for you is between you and your sweetheart. Work at it, sacrifice for it, enjoy it. You can make your home a bit of heaven as you build for an eternity together. Now to those in your mature years, press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope and the love of God and of all men. Continue to be living testimonies of the gospel as you share your faith, love, and wisdom. You are sorely needed in the mission field. What lives you will bless as you accept the call to serve. There is so much for you to do in the holy temples. Don't retire from active service in the Lord's kingdom. You are needed. I bear my testimony that God lives, that Jesus is the Savior, and that the gospel is for every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My dear brothers and sisters, knowing as I do that this is the Lord's Church and sensing somewhat the magnitude of the responsibility which comes with this call and this assignment, I have prayed most earnestly for that divine help which I feel so much in need of. During the last few years, my wife and I have served as missionaries in Latin American countries. This has been one of the most challenging and rewarding experiences of our lives. It has been deeply satisfying to work with those lovable and believing people and see the prophecies of the Book of Mormon being fulfilled as hundreds of thousands of the descendants of Lehi join the Church. The day of the Lamanites has truly arrived. The history of the Lamanites just prior to the Lord's first appearance on this continent reveals an interesting parallel between what occurred then and what is happening today. Commencing about the year 92 B.C., the Lamanites began coming into into the Lord's Church by the tens of thousands. That conversion miracle, which took place just shortly before the Lord's first advent, is being repeated now just prior to His second coming. There is an aspect of missionary work upon which I would like to comment briefly, and that is the joy which comes to those who engage in it. The Book of Mormon sums up the whole purpose of existence in this short sentence, Men are that they might have joy. If joy is the supreme goal of life, then everyone should be intensely interested in how it may be obtained. We should be equally concerned about how we may avoid its opposite, misery. These vital topics are discussed and illustrated in the Book of Mormon, and the information concerning them is directly related to missionary work. It tells us that those who completely devote their lives to the task of spreading the gospel experience exquisite joy, while those who oppose it and seek to promulgate falsehood suffer a misery equally intense. The gospel and the opportunity to share its message has not always been on the earth, but when it is here, we should value it highly. The Lord has given us His promise that if we labor all of our days and bring, save it be one soul, to Him, 
How great shall be our joy with him in the kingdom of our Father. A number of years ago, the late President Spencer W. Kimball, who was then a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, visited the stake in which I was living and made the statement that missionary work is the lifeblood of the Church. He also said that were it not for missionary work, the Church would wither and die on the vine. That statement, doubtless, applies as much to us as individuals and families as it does to the Church as a whole. A failure to utilize our endowments may indeed cause us to wither and die on the vine. I should like to discuss for a moment the enormous influence which missionary work has had upon my own life. My parents, who grew up in old Mexico, had not served missions prior to their marriage. But when a call came to the Seventies Quorum, to which my father belonged for a volunteer to serve a short-term mission, he went even though it meant leaving a farm and a large family of small children for his wife to care for. She welcomed that opportunity to sacrifice for church and family, and I well remember how heroically she bore her burdens during those difficult winter months. Then during the long, cruel years of the Great Depression, even though my parents suffered severe financial hardship, they always kept one of their children in the mission field. My father passed away at a relatively young age, and after he was gone and we children were married, my mother asked for and was given permission to serve a mission in Old Mexico. If there is honor attached to this call, and indeed there is, it goes not to me but to those whose examples of sacrifice and dedication have influenced my life so greatly. I pay tribute to them for their tireless and unceasing devotion to the Church and to their family. They have wielded an immense influence upon their ten children and their other numerous posterity. I must not close without expressing my love and appreciation for my dear companion, who is herself a notable example of hard work and sacrifice. I think she deserves to be heard from, and so I am going to pass on to you the following thoughts she suggested that I include in my address, not expecting that I would attribute them to her. And I quote, And now a word to grandparents on missionary work. She says, The blessings we receive therefrom reach down into our families. The grandchildren will never forget the special joy they feel at your farewell as they sing, Grandma and Grandpa are going on a mission. And then when you get into the mission field, letters start arriving containing statements like this, and these two are quotes, Grandma and Grandpa, I keep praying for you to be good missionaries, or sometime I'll go on a mission just like you. Grandmothers, you say you cannot leave the grandchildren. I want to bear you my testimony that you can be a lasting influence for good in the lives of those little ones by giving, them a, giving a year or so of your time to the service of the Lord in the mission field. The bonds of love will be strengthened and true miracles will occur. 
Don't deny your grandchildren those blessings. I challenge you to put it to the test. Such is the message of my dear wife, with which I am in total agreement. And now, in closing, I bear you my own witness that missionary work truly is the lifeblood of the Church, and that we have a divine commission to share the gospel with others. I know, nothing doubting, this is the work of the Lord, and that President Benson is his prophet on earth today. This testimony I bear in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.